welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Um, hi, my name is BJ Thompson, and um, I am here today hosting uh, with the Jew 3 Project. Uh, a project that is directed towards creating balance um, and meaningful um, dialogue across racial and cultural lines um, with biblical foundational truths. And so I'm here today uh, with one of my guests, um, um, Dr. Matthew Hall, um, and we will have Dr. Otis Moss chiming in here shortly um, with us today. And so today, one, one thing that we want to put on the table uh, to, to create some meaningful dialogue around is confronting um, our racial evangelical history and the implications for that. And so, um, Dr. Hall, if you don't mind, could you just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, um, and some things that we should just know about you. You should know uh, I am the husband of one woman, the okay. father of three children. Uh, I am a, a professor. I teach church history. I'm a Baptist minister, and I serve as an administrator at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. What All else right. do you want to know? Right. <laughs> and don't forget to tell them you're an Eagles fan. Never forget that. Oh, that makes you yeah. somewhere in the middle. We can talk about Randall Cunningham and Herschel Walker, but after that, it's just pain. It's just painful, painful, painful. Yeah, that's funny. So um, just to kind of get us started... Um, I'll just give you a little bit of kind of why I'm very interested in this conversation. Um, was introduced to the multicultural conversation um, probably in 2006, 2007. was a part of um, a church called Fellowship Memphis, um, which was a very um, unique kind of initiative by three lead pastors um, to create just kind of diversity within a city that had been divided. At the time, Memphis was the second most racially divided um, city in the nation next to Detroit. Um, and we were trying our hand at the multi-ethnic conversation and failed in some areas, succeeded in some areas, um, but ultimately saw God's grace. And I think um, we are in a pivotal time in history where we the conversation isn't just a local um, centralized conversation, but is a national and global conversation. And so um, I am personally interested because uh, we know that the gospel has implications for cross-cultural, cross-racial, um, historical um, mishaps and injustice. And so I am personally interested in this conversation because I believe that the church, of all people, um, can have, um, is, is able to bring some clarity to this conversation. And so uh, I guess I would just first start off by asking you, Dr. Hall, um, why are you personally even interested in this conversation? Why does it even matter? Well, I think it matters to Jesus. And I want the things that matter to Jesus to matter to me. <laughs> so Amen. that may sound like a simplistic or, or, or kind of a cop-out of an answer, but I think that's that's got to be the beginning of it for anyone. Dr. Hall, it's called a Jesus juke. It's called a Jesus yeah, juke. I know that's what you. I know that's what I'm going to be accused of right there. But before you get too technical, you know, you got to just say, I mean, as I read the Bible, as I read my New Testament, as I read the book of Acts, as I read Revelate, John's Revelation, uh, there's this just this constant picture uh, of what the gospel is 
this great message that Jesus is bringing into himself men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's breaking down dividing walls of hostility, and it's, and it's anticipating this eschatological uh, reality for eternity of a people of God that is, has nothing in common, uh, humanly speaking, other than that they are image bearers who have been redeemed and reconciled to God and to one another. So I see it in the Bible, and I think personally, for me, maybe if you want to say existentially, the reason I've kind of um, maybe given some time and some thought and tried to learn from others in this uh, in this area is uh, I went through um, a pretty good college education, good seminary education, did two master's degrees at a large evangelical seminary, and uh, really was never confronted, honestly. Uh, maybe I was and I just missed it, but I don't recall being confronted with categories and questions of race, justice, mm. and reconciliation, and uh, including in history classes. So when I went off to do my, uh, my graduate work at a secular state university and was there confronted with those categories, but without any gospel, without any, um, any kind of Christian categories, I had to really try to f connect the dots, and, and there weren't a lot of voices that I could go to. So for me as a professor, as a historian, and as a minister, it's me trying to put all that together and say, okay, what is, what, if these things are central to the heart of Jesus and his kingdom, uh, then what would that look like for me and the different responsibilities that I have? It's a great, it's a great response. <clears throat> you know, there has um, long been a dialogue, um, and I think it's been intensified via mediums like um, social media, um, which have given um, access to different people's worldviews, um, who traditionally we just would have no access to due to wealth, um, distance, um, geography, ethnicity, gender, and whatnot. Um, talk to me about some ways that, you know, have been instrumental for you discovering, you know, I think one of the statements that I consistently hear, especially as the conversation gets more intense, is I'm just a white guy. It's kind of like this... It's kind of the statement that says my my ignorance is attached to my um, cultural background, mm -hmm. and I'm just I just don't know. And so, what were some ways, or what are some things that began to kind of give you some insight, um, yeah. just to help some of my brothers and sisters who love to use that as a tagline? Yeah. So, I didn't come up in the social media generation. I kind of I mean I'm I'm a generation Xer. I'm like right at the end of generation X. So. For me, okay. it was a so, whole. So, aka the old school. Yeah, so the that's what it is. I, you know, I threw down Randall Cunningham earlier, so you knew I was dating myself. Uh, but for me, as as quote the white guy, and I think that's a good thing to talk about. What do we mean about whiteness, um, theologically speaking, and even ideologically? But um, for me, it was it was more when I went off to my state university experience for grad school had and, and just started reading things in American history that frankly had never been had to ex be exposed to before and um, uh, it was all these experiences that I started looking in my past in the rearview mirror and realizing man the way I interpreted that the way I navigated that in my community was very much a racialized lens and uh, so it was just kind of blew up my whole world mm -hmm. but yeah social media accelerates that absolutely yep. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, I just want to welcome. I think we have Dr. Moss just joined us. Dr. Moss, are you here with us? 
I'm here with you. Finally got on. <laughs> Been good, challenging. Good. But, uh, That's all right. But God's good. And I also think we have the lovely Miss Lisa Field. Lisa, are you here with us? Yes. I don't know how it locked me out of my own Google Hangout. So I had to lock on. <laughs> That's okay. Hey, that's okay. I get locked out of my car all the time. So. Sorry for the confusion, Dr. Moss. I was having trouble too myself. <laughs> oh, no problem. No problem at all. That's all right. That's BJ all right. and I got it all figured out. We do. We have, come on, just join our team <laughs> for the low price of twenty nine ninety nine. You can also, um, if you're just joining us, we um, um, have been discussing cross cultural relations and uh, Dr. Hall, um, who serves um, as a vice president for academic services um, since 2013 at, at uh, Southern in Louisville. Is that correct? Southern. That's right. <clears throat> okay. And we were um, just discussing um, some of the, uh, Dr. Hall was unpacking some of the, the misnomers about race. Um, and oftentimes it comes because of an absence of exposure. Um, and he was unpacking some of the, the aha moments in some of the pathways. Um, we're excited to have Dr. Moss, who is a legend, uh, just studying your bio. And <laughs> I'm about extremely that. honored. Hey, come on. I'm extremely honored to. Um, have you guys on the call, and we'll just love to hear you guys kind of talk back and forth on the subject. But before we do that, Dr. Moss, could you give us just a brief introduction of who you are and some things we need to know about you? Sure. Uh, I serve as pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, right on the south side. Um, I graduated from Morehouse College and Yale Divinity School and did my doctoral work at uh, Chicago Theological. Um, I've come out of a kind of a very unique I would say, uh, religious experience. Uh, both of my parents uh, were nurtured, developed in uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, that's how they met. Uh, the marriage ceremony was performed by Dr. King. I always joke and say that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Dr. King, literally, if he hadn't performed the ceremony. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <Next> status. went <laughs> <Spin> up. <laughs> but uh, I grew up in a faith community. My father was a pastor, uh, retired now where that civil rights community uh, was part and parcel of, of my growth and development. And so I made the assumption growing up that uh, compassion and justice, justice and faith, love and justice uh, was always an integral part of, of the gospel. It was not till I really got to college that I realized that there were you know, other uh, denominations and the way that people flowed. I really just kind of thought that there was, you know, there's a black church and there were some other folk who uh, operated very <laughs> differently. <laughs> and uh, I thought that everything else was, uh, you're supposed to be community centered. And so then I was yeah. introduced to a wide variety of, of denominational theological traditions uh, that uh, were disconnected in some ways in terms of what was happening in the world. Um, was introduced to uh, uh, how people had been colonized in terms of their uh, faith community, and it, it was a real eye-opener. And so I just kind of made my commitment to uh, being committed to community, being committed to uh, kind of decolonizing uh, our perspective of what faith is all about, what Christianity uh, is, is about, and uh, very much so an uh, African-centered. Uh, our motto at Trinity is unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. We don't think that there is a, mm. a disconnect between one's Africanity and one's Christianity, that it shouldn't, you should not jettison who you are uh, when you accept Christ, uh, that there is a demand for us to accept who we are and, and whose we are. And um, uh, that's, that's, that's just a few things in a nutshell there. So 
I'm glad to be on. I'm glad to be on this conversation. I'm glad things are working. I got a little mobile device. My, um, I'm not in the location that I was hoping to be in, but uh, I'm glad it's working at this point. Amen. Amen. Well, if you could, because I know oftentimes we use, term, we use terminology, um, so the same terminology mean different things. And so um, if you both could, and just starting with you, Dr. Hall, how would you define evangelicalism? Um, as we know it. Yeah. Uh, that's and especially with this political climate. That's a that's a can of worms, isn't it? Uh, I think you've got evangelical in one sense. There's a broad tradition that goes back to the 1740s, uh, dating back to what's sometimes called the Great Awakening, kind of the post-Puritan era. Um, it's it's rooted in people like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, among others. Uh, if you're talking theologically in terms of its genealogy, uh, it's also one tied to colonialism uh, from its very beginning. So I think that is that is part of the birth of evangelicalism and the transatlantic experience. But I think as we experience it in the United States, it's a little more limited than that because the global evangelical, if you use the idea of global evangelicalism, is a lot broader. It's a lot more eclectic. Um, it's it's hard to it's not monolithic. The American way is very much, uh, for a variety of reasons that might be worth talking about, is I think tied to the post World War II, um, Billy Graham. Usually when people say evangelical, they use Billy Graham as kind of a litmus test, fairly or not. Absolutely. So that that Absolutely. has that is often it it's a conversation that often does get racialized, um, and so I think sometimes people will say, well. Are you equating evangelicalism with whiteness, uh, or do you add an adjective there? Do you say white evangelicals? But uh, there's a there's a rich tradition, obviously, in the in the historic black church that kind of functions parallel to kind of this the whiteness of evangelicalism. I don't know if that makes any sense, but no, it does for us. For yeah. me, for me, it does. Yeah. Can yeah, you so go more that, into that just for our audience's sake? I know you know we are all kind of seminary grads and. That's kind of the water we swim in. Could you just unpack some of the connotations or assumptions about the attachment to evangelicalism to whiteness and Billy Graham and what that means yeah. for our culture and society? Yeah, I think if you define evangelicalism theologically, so David Bebbington, a prominent historian, he's offered kind of a fourfold test that's theological. And there, I think you'd find a lot of diversity in terms of race, ethnicity, class, um, but if you're thinking about evangelicalism beyond just the theology of the American experience in the post-war context, you're also talking about structures of power, institutions, uh, networks, um, and in that regard, you know, you think about what are kind of the dominant institutions in American evangelicalism, whether it's the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, Billy Graham and everything surrounding his ministry, um, a lot of it is very much tied to whiteness. And uh, it's no coincidence that the, that movement really ascended into prominence after World War II and the, and the post-war era, right as the black freedom movement and the civil rights movement was, was surging. And so the question of how evangelicalism responded to, interacted with the civil rights movement is a critical part of why, uh, quote, evangelicalism is a, is a very racialized term. Wow. Huge. Huge. There's so, there's so much. I, 
I'll yeah. wait to start the pot here shortly um, to hear more, but, but thanks for that. Uh, Dr. Moss, could you briefly just explain what, what would you say, how would you define evangelical, evangelical or evangelicalism um, as we know it today? Well, I think that uh, a lot, out of a lot of the traditions in the in the African American community, that uh, what we consider to be uh, evangelical, evangelical, um, is kind of a prisoner of of, of kind of European uh, white structures and and culture. So for for the Black Church and Black religiosity, which comes out of the invisible institution in in America, what we know as as the Church, the argument. Of, of liberal and conservative was kind of an enlightenment argument. Uh, and here you have a, a third grouping that has a different theological perspective that was trying to really figure out what are you all talking about? You know, we recognize uh. that uh, there is a God. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's deeply rooted in who we are. Um, and the, the kind of liberal conservative uh, con uh, arguments were really in response to the enlightenment where you had wow. some people who said, oh, we want to hold on to the scientific method. And another group said, well, we want to hold on to a particular tradition. And then you have this other group that says, that's not our argument. Um, you know, our argument is that we recognize that, uh, that God is real and present uh, in our lives. We, we take uh, scripture seriously, um, mm -hmm. uh, not literally, but seriously, but uh, that, that there is an embodiment in terms of how uh, the African-American community views scripture, that it embodies us, that uh, it, it moves in us and through us, and is transformative. There's a wonderful book, um, Alan Callahan, he wrote, uh, writes The Talking Book. And Callahan talks about the fact of African-Americans who were not literate, uh, but they prayed over the Bible, these documented little stories, which are really powerful. And all of a sudden they were able to discern the, the letters and the words and that mm -hmm. there was this kind of incantational power uh, around wow. uh, uh, the Bible and this mysticism uh, that operated. And so when we speak of, of evangelical, evangelical it, it is more of the embodiment, a combination. It cannot be located in one area. It's like we're, we're part speaking Pentecostal, we're part speaking liberation, we're part uh, speaking Jesus suffers with us, we're part um, speaking the idea that Christ is teacher, uh, we're part speaking that uh, Jesus is personal savior. We are more of a gumbo interaction mm. with faith than we are one Come or on. the other. There's a, cre there's a creolization mm. around who we are. And, and so yeah. that's what I think is so very rich that we bring to, to the table because we critique by our very existence the idea of evangelical, the fact that we, we, we survived through, uh, we awakened the great awakening and gave them a reawakening uh, when they had to engage who we are. Uh, and that's part of the unique and uh, richness out of our tradition that our very existence uh, through the challenges of facing the contradiction and insanity of, of racism uh, attached to uh, a theological narrative, and yet we created something completely, utterly new that America uh, is still struggling to understand and recognize what is this faith uh, that, that, that you have? What is this uh, concept mm -hmm. that, that you, you are operating out of? Wow. Powerful, a lot. Um, so, Dr. Hall, just—I um, mean, there's a, there's so much in this conversation. And I appreciate you, you men, 
sharing so freely and lovingly. Dr. Hall, how do we talk about our history? Namas um, talked about the um, lack of reconciliation that occurred given um, the historical oppression that we see in our nation and it's global. I just read an article this morning about South Africa and it is the exact it's same culture mm -hmm. um, and they are wrestling. How do you teach church history? Because um, I read in your bio, you are a scholar and you teach church history. How do you articulate church history in a way yeah. that acknowledges that evil while still dignifying the people? Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I actually do this, and I'm very much in process like a lot of my colleagues in any discipline. Um, but this semester, just finished teaching a, a section of church history too to master's students, and the first night we talk about just some presuppositions um, that, that are going to guide how we think about the history of Christianity. And one of those is uh, to do a better job of listening to voices outside of our own tradition and, and also realizing this is a global church, this is not monolithic, and that we have blinders that make us assume the normativity of our own experience. So we think mm -hmm. normative Christianity is the experience that I've had of Christianity. Well, as an evangelical, I want to make sure that the Bible, the authoritative texts uh, of, of the Christian faith, uh, that are inspired and fallible and without error, that those are the ones that are always pressing against my blind spots. So when I talk about this history, uh, it's important to tell the truth. So when I get to Jonathan Edwards in church history, I can't, I can't just give him a pass on the fact that he bought mm -hmm. a 13-year-old African girl named Venus, and I can't try to get around the fact that he likely went to Marketplace and inspected her body and looked for scars and looked for evidence of whether or not she'd be a, a good financial investment. And I just find that when I talk like that with my students, if I have kind of set the table so that they're thinking a Christ-centered way, they're submitting themselves to the authority yeah. of the scriptures, they're gonna, they're more willing, especially the white students uh, who otherwise, they have this natural instinct to want to defend their heroes in every way. Absolutely. But if I can get them thinking as Christians and telling the truth about history, then they can be confronted with those very painful realities about their heroes and, th and that great and horrific contradiction of how could someone who really is at the center of evangelicalism, who speaks up for uh, conversion and for the, the nature of true religion as this experience of, of this, this spiritual experience of knowing God, uh, how could he have been complicit in this great wickedness mm. and evil? And you could go down, Edwards is just maybe a, a rather uh, powerful icon for so many of us, but there are so many like that. So we, I try when I do church history to bring in a global perspective as much as I can, to test um, some assumptions, and to point them to, to, to the scriptures. We, I think this text, just if I can add one other thought, for faculty, for professors who teach church history, the texts that we assign are so mm -hmm. vital. So I, um, I've had to be very, I've been humbled in this, honestly, and since my own inadequacy. Uh, when I first started teaching church history, I just wasn't seeing this. So uh, just this semester, I had students read things like David Walker's Appeal, uh, mm. which is a very evangelical yeah. text, <laughs> if you read his appeal. Uh, I've had him read Frederick Douglass's appendix to his autobiography. I think that is a very powerful and evangelical, it is. Uh, in some sense, evangelical, right, if you know what I mean. And even reading uh, a little bit of Du Bois, uh, who obviously Du Bois would, would 
cringe if, if he were identified as an evangelical. I think he would resist that. But there are so many things yeah. that, that haunt Du Bois uh, in his yeah. writing that are deeply Christian. Uh, Absolutely. So there are voices like that that I try to bring into my classroom uh, that they may not agree with everything theologically, yeah. but my students need to hear those voices because those voices are part of the global Christian experience. Wow, that's huge, man. You are, you are what we call um, becoming more awake, right? Just awaken to those things. Talk to us about Dr. Moss. <clears throat> so um, Brother Hall was just referring to some of the historical uh, inconsistencies and and trying to humanize our heroes um, and I think that that's sobering for all of us is that we all need to humanize those people who we admire we see that as a biblical concept from Abraham to Moses anyone I mean you think about any hero in the scriptures mm -hmm. they are humanized um, by the highlighting of the things that were not in step with the gospel mm -hmm. how do we see those things today um, I, I read in, in your bio, Dr. Moss, that one of your things is um, organizing, speaking to the cultural narrative. How do those things echo the, the past? Because oftentimes we love to say, man, that was a past. I heard uh, something recently with a candidate who said that was 200 years ago. Don't worry about that. Let's move forward. How do we see those things today and how do we begin to move forward um, given the grievances that we see all in all humanity, mm -hmm. not in just white humanity. So, well, uh, I first say is that history shapes our present and lays mm -hmm. the groundwork for the highway for for the future. So, first of all, you just cannot dismiss our history um, because it shapes who we are. We we operate out of that. One of the things I talk about is what I call prophetic contradiction. Uh, that one can be prophetic, one can be deeply rooted, but live in contradiction. And I use as many times um, for this prophetic contradiction is somebody by the name of Tupac, Tupac Shakur. I think he's a wonderful example of prophetic contradiction. The idea that he can lift up poverty and race and then fall so incredibly short around issues of, of gender um, and a variety of other, uh, other issues. But mm -hmm. he is a prime example of when you examine the prophets and when you examine uh, biblical characters that they live in utter contradiction uh, that there is no perfection for anyone who chooses to mm. uh, to serve the gospel to serve humanity uh, that we have these incredible flaws uh, at, at best we bump up against God uh, we never have a complete clear picture of who God is um, and every era attempts to use uh, the language uh, of that era to understand, you know, who who God is, um, however that may be in their particular uh, their particular framework, and so I think that's really important uh, for for this generation when you are honest about the contradictions. David is a man after God's mm -hmm. own heart, but David is an incredible political leader, but he is an awful, horrific father. He allows his own daughter knows about his own daughter's sexual violation and says nothing, and, and my interpretation is that he says nothing because he's worried about the political ramifications and not necessarily um, his parental uh, Come on, Doc, don't do it, don't and, do and it, so Doc. Don't those do are the it. kinds of things that we have to begin to lift up. And the beauty of the gospel mm. is that Jesus is calling people who have contradictions. So when you look at the first two call stories in, in, in Mark, the first call story initially of these two wonderful brothers 
uh, who are poor. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, Simon Peter and his brother and James and John and whatnot. And then you see Jesus using this class critique, said, I'm going to call the poor guys first. Uh, and then I'm going to call the wealthy ones who have, you know, they own a boat and have uh, uh, servants and whatnot. But then I'm going to take them away from the Sea of Galilee, a sea that is owned by Rome. And I want to make them fishers of men. In other words, don't pay your taxes to Caesar. I want you to serve me first. And But the beautiful thing is, is that Peter, that the rock, the rock, Peter, you know, I'm going to build this church on Peter, all this good stuff. Peter's the straight up thug of the gospel. I mean, anybody who carries a yeah. knife and cuts off ears is a straight thug. But Jesus uh, says, yeah. I want to use the, use you. And so mm. we see even at on the cross, Jesus is hanging, I like to say, between two thugs. We love to say malfactors yeah. and thieves. I mean, thug is what they do. What do they do? They're thugs. And one thug is spewing humiliation. And the mm -hmm. other is saying, remember me. Now, theologically, think about this. We really, ultimately, as human beings, don't know who's in heaven, um, but we can say with, cl with clarity, we do know that the person on the cross is with Jesus. So if a thug is in heaven, then it must be a gangster's paradise, meaning that God is willing to call and hold yeah. dear those yeah. people we want to cast aside. They are contradictions. Yeah. But, they, but God works through the contradictions to say that I can use you. And anytime people of faith are always trying to exclude people to say you can't be used by God, then obviously you haven't read the yeah. scriptures. Yeah. Powerful, man. There, there's a lot of power there. Um, Dr. Hall, as you hear, I mean, uh, one thing I think that is very obvious is being brought up is our interpretation of people and the cultural narratives um, in comparison to the biblical narrative. How do we reconcile? I mean, even just kind of culturally, we can write people off. We what it, in the 80s, 70s, 80s, they were calling women welfare queens, mm -hmm. and or you know, you saw just recently some of the tensions uh, that were occurring. You know, these thugs, and it, it was almost like as if <clears throat> the church was given justification. Um, to write off an entire people group based off of cultural history, past tensions, and assumptions. How do you, as a white male, um, how do you even reconcile that, and how do you begin to teach that um, to those who are you, you're discipling or instructing? Yeah. Well, I, I like to tell uh, church members, students, um, that the, the problem is worse than you think. And I'll, mm. I use the terminology of sin. I think the way the Bible talks about it, we live in a this fallen, uh, present evil age, uh, as the scriptures describe the world we live in. Um, and so the world, is, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to use the old language, is always trying to squeeze you into its mold. And we, I think, as individ, uh, hyper individualistic Americans, often think, well, sin uh, only looks like you know the personal decision, conscious decisions that I make, my own temptation, um, but that the world and the system of the world, that is part of it, but the system of the world is constantly trying to squeeze you into its mold, and uh, there are all kinds of forces and lies uh, and pressures that are contrary to the Word of God and are trying to make, your, make these other lesser identities, which often are toxic identities, they're trying to make those your primary identity. When your primary identity, if you're a Christian, 
is that you've been united to Christ by faith and you've been adopted as an heir alongside uh, Christ and your brothers and sisters in the faith. So if that's my primary identity, then my you know, identity as an American, my identity as uh, my racialized identity, as important and as, and as wonderful as it may be as it bears witness to the image of God, it's still subordinate to my identity in Christ as, as a joint heir with him. And then you go way down the list, okay, so my partisan political identity or my socioeconomic identity, mm. those things are real and we need to factor those into our, the way we think about our communities and our discourse and, our, and, our, and our, uh, the idea of a beloved community, but they have to be subordinated. And what I find often with my, frankly, evangelical brothers and sisters is there's this constant call to discipleship that has to occur to say, your first identity is as a daughter, as a son of God who's been reconciled in Christ everything else has to has to has to fall under that and so that may reorder some things it may push against some things that the world's trying to impose on you hmm. yeah what are, what are some things that it would reorder and what are some ways if, if you try to, to push trouble? against you what are some things? <laughs> no 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 I'm yeah, trying no, to bring no. clarity yeah well I think you know a, there are tough people it's a good it's a great question BJ I think you know what I want to tell folks is when they see something blow up, you know, and it's and it's racially charged, whatever that term means, uh, and they have an immediate visceral reaction, a reaction that is characterized by anger, by fear, um, whatever it is. I just want to say, just breathe for a moment before you tweet off 140 characters, before you <laughs> assert your authoritative interpretation of what happened. Got you. Uh, mm -hmm. And say, okay, what, what what does it mean? What would it mean if my primary identity is to think the is to be a reconciled heir of God, reconciled through the gospel, through Christ? If that's really who I am, I'm, I'm as Peter talks about it. I'm I'm an elect exile, right? Uh, this isn't my home. If that's the most fundamental reality about me, then how do I enter into the experience of someone who's suffering, of someone who bears the image of God and is may even be my own brother in Christ or my own sister in Christ? And kind of how do I turn down the volume just for a moment on my other identity as, quote, a Democrat, a Republican, middle class, working poor, whatever it may be. And I find that's where it comes up. So, again, something happens in the news, you know, another, another young man's shot. Uh, and everyone's got their interpretation that say, they say, well, that's, you know, this is what was happening there because I saw it on Facebook. Or this is what was happening because my, you know, my friend told me. I want to say, okay, just, just breathe for a second. And, and maybe think through, try to enter into the experience of, of your brother or sister uh, who's coming at it from a different uh, experience or different perspective. Absolutely. And definitely you know, turn down, down the volume. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I would add to that that one of the things that um, a life in Christ should do is it should explode, destroy, deconstruct um, racialized identity. When I say that, once you hear it, you can't be white at the same time and be Christian. But listen, I'm not saying get aware of your ethnicity, but the idea of the yeah. privilege has to be destroyed and deconstructed. Mm -hmm. uh, because whiteness is itself is something that is created. Uh, blackness uh, is created, but at the same time, blackness is connected to an ethnic identity that we that has shrouded in mystery because of the transatlantic slave trade. So we Dr. Moss, before you go on, can let me ask you a question because I we need mm -hmm. clarity. I, I I just know okay. again, you know, we're scholars here, but I want to make sure our audience is, is tracking please, with us. Please, please, go right ahead. Give us a definition for whiteness being socially constructed and how 
um, and and how do you how are our, our brothers and sisters to help identify this in a way that doesn't bring them shame and guilt? What sure. do you mean when you say privilege? So you said whiteness. So up until so up privilege. until so let me give you let me give you the uh, the uh, the history behind it. So up until around it was about seventeen, let's say eighty six. 89, if you're reading literature, the idea of whiteness just does not exist. The idea of, you know, someone being uh, Negro colored really doesn't exist. You're either African or you were of a particular ethnicity from Europe. German, Irish. Bacon's, yeah, you were German, you're whatever your ethnicity, whatever your, your surname was, people associated you with that particular, with that particular group. Um, or you were, you know, a hodgepodge of that. And so something happened called the ba Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia. We're, we're, we're black people and white people said, you know, the real problem is the person in that house over there. So, so let's deal with that person and let's build a coalition. What happened after Bacon's rebellion is that poor whites were given a wage that was not money. We will give you status over enslaved Africans by giving you status in the upper class by calling you white. We're not going to give you the rights. We're just going to, we're, you know, and we're not going to give you land. We're just going to say, we call you white. So you're better than the enslaved Africans. We will then stop calling people African because that then connects them to an ethnic identity. And then we'll start using terms colored, Negro, and thus over time, the slave system built this privileged hierarchy around racialized thinking. And you were given privileges uh, based upon um, your your identity in this particular uh, class, you know, this this class order. And what I am saying is that a life in Christ demands that I cannot operate with this privilege. Yeah. I cannot live in this identity, um, this racialized identity, because I'm a new creation which means not only do I have to destroy it personally, but involved in deconstructing it in other people's minds. Wow. The mythos of racialized thinking. For example, it's interesting that now in America, uh, and, and Michelle Alexander does a great job with this in New Jim Crow, that we have this myth that African-American males, criminal, thug, yada, 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 all of this other interesting thing. But previous to emancipation, the most yep. trustworthy group of people were always black uh, people. You don't, you don't, you don't turn over your children to people you don't trust to raise your children. So a myth was created because skilled black labor was being released into the South. All of the people who were building homes, the people who were the agricultural experts, were Africans because they worked on these, uh, on these plantations. And in order to allow, you know, to keep this competition from really happening, the mythos of you cannot hire, the mythos of these people are not trustworthy, which also opened the door for the second uh, mode of operation of slavery, better known as the peonage system. Uh, my family comes out of the sharecropping mm. system, which was a peonage system, which was a new form of slavery. It re-enslaved 500,000 black people. Those who are living in Birmingham, Alabama right now, Birmingham, Alabama was built as a result, not just of slave labor, but of peonage labor that mined iron ore for U.S. steel. 
The entire South wow. was rebuilt by people under a system that said, if two or three black people gather and you do not have your papers, you are sent immediately to nine to 15 years in prison and yeah. your labor was sold to U.S. Steel as, as one example. That happened wow. up until 1972, which then went wow. into the third frame. The third frame was the war on drugs. The war on drugs of then allowed people the containment of black bodies to be used again for privatized prisons for labor once again. And so there's been a continual process. So I say that when you um, accept Christ, you want to destroy these categories and see yourself as an ally uh, in a community, with a community that America historically has used to build, has America has historically benefited from, but America does not want to accept the burden of repentance and the burden of renewal, of recognizing our racialized past. Wow. Okay. Um, Dr. Hall, how do we um, dispense that perspective to the, the yeah. broader culture? Um, because what it, it sounds like, and I'm just giving you, it's, it's how we've been conditioned, right? Sounds like Dr. Moss is this eccentric black nationalist because what he's <laughs> communicating Oh, well, I'm just I, I'm I'm just saying like from a broader culture. I know that it's accurate. I'm just saying that's how it sounds when people of color use words like systemic or mm. or they reference history and they go into actual laws yeah. um, that many of us have never heard of. We've never heard. We don't know what grand larceny is. We never heard of peonage. We we don't know what the black codes mm. are or um, all these different terms. How do we as the church help communicate this perspective, um, given the fact that to most, even people of color, they've never heard of it a day in their life. So how do we do the, the work of discipleship here? Yeah, well, I, I think it's good news for history professors like me. It's, it, it, hopefully it's job security. <laughs> if we do it, it well, if we do it well, uh, I think what I, Dr. Moss is, is helpful to point out the power of the ideology of whiteness uh, has often gone undetected in evangelicalism. So let me explain what I mean by that. Mm. I mean, so we, we have to, and we're gonna, we may all come at it from different approaches. I'm coming at it as an evangelical, as someone committed and convinced of, of I mean, I may be accused of being a literalist, I don't know. Uh, but but we I, that's liberal. The they call it liberal. So you'll be a social justice warrior after. Well, I come at it. I'm conflicted. So some folks are going to think I'm a fundamentalist. Others think I'm you know because I talk about justice that I'm you know a liberal. So you do with that what you want to do. But yeah. But when when the ideology just of white Jesus man, that's all. You just well, a Jesus man. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But, <laughs> so let me give you an example. Most when I talk to white evangelicals, and here we, we it's hard to escape that terminology. But or evangelicals who think uh, of themselves as white, maybe we can do it that mm. way. Um, they've yeah. never been f confronted with the, the, these categories, so I find there are a couple diagnostics I can do. One is I find often uh, when we when we're reading the the Pauline corpus and we read stuff on Jews and Gentiles, and or we're reading an Acts, and you know this whole controversy 
do folks who are going to come into the church, do they have to become ethnic Jews to be par uh, part of the people of God? Do they have to subscribe to the law? Do they have to be circumcised? Well, when we read Ephesians 2, for example, I find for evangelicals who think of themselves as white, there's almost this automatic insertion of themselves into the Jewishness, the normative group, Absolutely. and the outside group that's kind of brought in, the Gentile group, that's kind of associated with blackness or brownness. And, and so they, would, they wouldn't articulate it that way, but when you, when you talk, sometimes the way we have, uh, our categories of whiteness have shaped how we exegete those passages, we, we, people who think of themselves as white often insert themselves into the Jewishness, and they think, well, that's the normative experience, and those who are other, the outsiders, those, that, that, those are the Gentiles. And you realize, well, actually, that's, that's some pretty, uh, those are some hermeneutical acrobatics you've got to do to, to mm. racialize and, and put that category of whiteness there. Another way I see it, uh, often in our institutions and churches, and, and particularly mono-ethnic or mono-racial churches that are white kind of majority, is, the, is again the idea of the normativity of whiteness. And so the idea being, well, we want to pursue justice, we want to pursue diversity, we want to pursue reconciliation, but we're really doing it because we want to reach those folks who are other than us because they need us. Mm. And so mm. if I can just be so honest to say, well, we're going to pursue this because we think those black and brown folks need what we've got. Absolutely. And a lot of us are trying to say this is, a, this is about what we're talking about is community. We're talking about a gospel-centered reconciliation where it's not just, in fact, that black and brown folks need what white folks have to offer if they have the gospel. It's also the community of God, the people of God, we need one another. And so, I'm, just to be very specific, at a seminary like the one I teach at, it's not that just black and brown students need what Southern Seminary has to offer. Southern Seminary needs, longs right. for, yearns to deal with our history, honestly, and to create a community of learning centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ where we understand our black and brown sisters and brothers they provide all kinds of riches and wealth and, and beauty uh, for, for all of our community here. So it's not just what can we do, uh, kind of the normative community or Christian experience, to, to, to kind of bless in kind of a paternalistic sense those on the outside who are not here. It's also how can we create a welcoming community where, where frankly, we are all conformed into the image of Christ together because we need one another in that. I think those are ways, they're often subtle sometimes, and they go undetected by those with power and the majority. Uh, but when you can start kind of pulling the veil back, so to speak, uh, if, if people are born again, if they have the Spirit of God living within them, I'm, I'm more encouraged than I am discouraged. I'm hopeful. Amen. 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 Um, Dr. Moss, when you, <clears throat> um, Dr. Hall was just bringing up this point about re-educating, and we have to mm -hmm. re-educate and... Um, as you look at the terrain, you are in a in you know a unique situation, urban center. Matter of fact, um, in 2001, one of the reasons why I began to pursue kind of this transformation was reading studies on Chicago, and I mm. recognized that a lot of the outcomes were not just kind of coincidental; they were constructed incubators um, for the, the the brokenness that's occurring that we see now in Chicago. How do you? How would you encourage those who are entering into this conversation, um, black and brown brothers and sisters who are abandoning the faith, going to, you know, the NOI, um, you know, Hebrew Israelite or whatnot, because they lack ethnic awareness? And how mm -hmm. would you encourage our um, white brothers and sisters who feel exasperated? And the moment you begin to t 
to um, confront with difficult subject matters, they just throw their hands up. How would you encourage those groups? Well, I would say that what is very exciting to me is to witness a, a new generation that's ex really excited to have these kinds of conversations. And whenever you have a, a conscious person who sees themselves or believes that they are white and recognizing that that's a construct, and then all of a sudden you have someone in, in the Christian tradition, out of the, the black church tradition, who is willing to engage the idea that Christianity didn't start in France and Sweden, um, all of a sudden you have a, a new excitement and interesting conversation. Uh, one of the things that's fascinating to me about Trinity is, is how many people of European descent love hanging out at our church. Because they're like, it's, it's freed up that you're speaking about things that we've, we've never talked about, that all of a sudden I see myself as, as human and I, I recognize my, my identity is not racialized. My identity is, is in Christ and also is, is ethnic. And then people, we get so many people from the nation, black Hebrew Israelites, because they, they were never told that, yes, start with Genesis if you want to find black people. Um, then we go from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the way we teach Bible study. We don't teach Bible study with Charlton Heston as the centerpiece for Moses um, mm -hmm. or Christian Bale or anybody of that nature. Uh, we, we have a completely different narrative. And it is empowering when people begin to see. The, the beautiful thing about, let me put it this way. The beautiful thing about the, the Christian faith. It is so powerful. Laman Sanai, who was one of my professors, he says, is the translatability. Every other faith, you have to come to a person's culture to accept the particular faith. With Christianity, with our faith, uh, God is saying that, guess what? I recognize your, your unique identity. So Sané told this story that blew me away. He said that when the Portuguese came to West Africa, they translated the Bible into the native tongue, uh, whether it was Igbo, Yoruba, whatever it was, and they had a problem on their hands. Every time they translated the Bible and they were doing classes, the missionaries, all of a sudden they had a straight-up revolution and a riot because they said, well, if I translate your Portuguese term for God, I must use my Igbo term for God, whether it was Shango or whatever, which also gives me a theological underpinning, which means mm. God would never want me to be a slave. So it was deemed in Portugal, you can never translate the Bible into the native tongue. They must learn to be Portuguese first because we want them to convert to be Portuguese, not Christian. That's just, a, you know, there's just an additional piece. Um, and when we recognize that uh, one of the most beautiful, diverse books that you can read is the Bible. Um, you know, you begin to see that when Jesus uh, spent time, when they wanted to hide Jesus, they took him down to Africa. He didn't, he didn't go to Sweden. You know, they took him to Africa. They yeah. said Egypt is in Africa, for those who don't know. Um, he's been in yeah. Africa for quite some time. Uh, <laughs> and that's where they wanted to hide him. Hide him in camouflage and plain sight. I always joke and say that if you want to hide your children, come to the south side of Chicago versus going mm -hmm. you know, far north to Winneka. Um, in one of the suburbs because you have people who look like you. I mean, it's kind of fun kind of saying these things. But it's important for people to recognize that I am present. And by saying that, you're also saying that God is present. If God only can be viewed 
from the artistic mind of somebody from Rome, it's a problem. Wow. Uh, if God can only be viewed from the artistic creativity of someone from France, that's a problem. But God should be operating in Brazil and in Peru and Korea, and we should have images and a theological narrative that comes yeah. from that perspective. Because think about this. As, long, as yeah. much time as the disciples spent with Jesus, as much time, they do not deal with how Jesus looked. They talk about how he sounded. In other words, it's the sound of the gospel. It's what yeah. is uttered that transforms. And whenever we get into that which can be copywritten, we turn the gospel into a form of capitalism that yeah. is no longer Christianity. That's huge, man. That's a, it's a huge thing. We have an amazing conversation. I'm sure we could go and we'll probably go offline and continue the dialogue. But if you could leave us with one application again, you know, audience walks away from these conversations oftentimes just with one, they just need one practical application just to move forward. And so, uh, Dr. Hall, I'll start with you, and then Dr. Moss, I'll let you finish. What's one thing that our audience, just listening to this conversation, what's one thing our audience can do to practically just begin to enter into this space and, and gain some clarity? So Yeah, I think uh, for a lot of folks, it can be a very painful experience. So there's there's some privilege and ease in saying, I just don't want to enter into the conversation. I just want to keep moving on. And uh, especially when you talk about the past. So what I try to say, and I'm even speaking with a dear brother last night about some of this, uh, is that there, Christians have a usable past that has an eschatological hope. And what I mean mm. by that is centered on the cross. If God can take the murder, uh, the violent and unjust murder of his own son, uh, as, as Dr. Moss said, said, you know, strung up between two thugs, uh, if he can take the most violent, wicked, unjust, and abominable act in, uh, that has ever been perpetuated by human beings, uh, treason against the very God-man, if he can take that and redeem that, and by that act, by that atoning work, redeem unto himself men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and give them a new place, a new identity, a new uh, community uh, that is all rooted in, that's our vision of the future. If God can take that very painful and awful past and redeem it for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of the joy of the nations, then I want to look at my own history personally, my family, my community, and even the tradition that I stand in as, as an evangelical. I want to look at that and say, honestly, well, God can redeem that. He can take a Jonathan Edwards uh, who was complicit. Good. He can take Southern Baptists that I am, um, I'm part of that tradition and all the pain and, and that comes along with that, and he can redeem that. But we've got to be willing to tell the truth about it. God doesn't call us to shrink back from the truth. In fact, the apostolic witness is consistently in the scriptures about telling the truth about what happened at Calvary. If Amen. you don't get, if you if you try to minimize the pain, the wickedness, the injustice of Calvary, you're going to miss the joy and the hope and the promise and the good news of the gospel. Hallelujah, Hallelujah! That's a great word. That's a great word. Come on, Dr. Moss. One yeah. one thing, our audience, man, that's a powerful word. One thing our audience can walk away application-wise, um, and then mm -hmm. we'll close. Well, I would. It would be more of a question, a form of a question. Do you want to preach 
what Jesus, do you want to preach Jesus or do you want to preach what Jesus preached? And those are two fundamentally different things that often I think that mm. we preach Jesus, but we're not preaching what Jesus preached. If you preach what Jesus preached, then you start preaching love and compassion and justice and speaking to those who have their backs against the wall. And hopefully love will get you in trouble. That mm -hmm. you'll spend time with those who are marginalized and raise a question. How can I be effective and partner and an ally for their liberation? Whether it is those impoverished in your community, those who are sex trafficked in your community, how can you add your resources and your voice to those who are voiceless? That's preaching what Jesus preached versus just preaching Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, that's our time for today. Um, thank you guys for joining us thank on you. the June, June 3 project, um, Courageous Conversations. And today our guests, Dr. Hall and Dr. Moss, make sure you check them out. Any handles people can reach you at online? What, what, what are some ways that people can reach you? Uh, at OM3 on, on Twitter. You can, can reach me there. Um, or on, on Facebook, you can uh, search me there. And um, I'll, be, I'll be getting trouble from my publisher if I don't plug my book, Blue Note <laughs> Preaching uh, in a Post-Soul World. Okay. Um, you know, how to speak about uh, hope in an age of despair. It's a whole thing on, 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 on a 21st century uh, social justice preaching. Good. Come on. We need it. Come on. Dr. Hall, what are some and, ways? And I just got to say, this is the first for me to have the honor of doing one, a conversation with someone who's given the Lyman Beecher Awards at Yale, <laughs> out of which Dr. Moss's book came. So I want to. I know he won't say it, but that is the nation's oldest and most distinguished lectures in homiletics. And so... As a wow. seminary administrator, I want to give him uh, his due on that. Uh, you can, uh, folks can reach me on Twitter as well at uh, at Matthew J Hall. Two T. And I, I wasn't able to do an introduction because I don't know Google Hangouts kicking me out. But um, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Jamie at Kinetics Live um, because this is um, a joint uh, partnership between the G3 Project and Jamie. And for those that know, don't know. Um, Jamie Yee is the founder of Kinetics Live, and I'm Lisa Fields, the founder of the G3 Project. So thank you, guys. I'm sorry we thank had you. trouble at the beginning. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm glad we got it all worked straight it out. Now. <laughs> so thank, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it thank you <laughs>